Live from New York City, it's the Gary Null Show. And now, your host, Gary Null. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Null. Nice to have you with us today. We're going to have a lot of insights on health and healing, cumin, green tea, heart disease, cancer, what we can do to prevent them and help in the process of our body recovering. We're also going to learn about the omega-3 and anxiety and inflammation. Also, new neurons erase old memories to make new ones. This is really exciting. And I'll tell you why we all should benefit from that. Grapes or red wine slows brain plaque linked to Alzheimer's disease. And also new evidence that dark chocolate helps ease emotional stress. That and many other studies. From our environmental segment today, there's been a question out there. Do the, uh, the many, many, many earthquakes that we've been seeing, do they relate to oil wells or fracking? We'll go into that, and we'll use one example from a major new study out on this topic. Also, we'll take a look at, from our commentaries, another study blows up the myth of upward mobility, and death throes, the mainstream media is hanging on by a thread, Also, we'll look at Up Close and Personal with George Bush's horrifying legacy, Hillary Clinton's hawkish legacy, WikiLeaks' document reveals Wall Street's plan for global financial deregulation, and domestic violence scars kids' DNA. Those are just some of the topic. Our longer commentary will be from activist post John Whitehead. Has the Department of Homeland Security become America's standing army? So we have a lot to share today. I will open it for calls a little later on in the program. And our number to call in on is 888-874-4888. Also, I realize many of you are listening right now over the telephones. In fact, of 4,500 radio stations that use the phones, we're number one. So we thank you. Uh, It's made a big difference so people don't have to be in front of a computer or a land-based station. Radio. Um, Let me give you those two numbers so you can have them. If you ever need them, you can call 401-347-0456, 401-347-0456, as well as 712-432-7231, 712-432-7231. Benefits of cumin seed because I'm a big advocate of black cumin seed oil. This is from the Times of India. And it talks about, quote, cumin seeds not only add taste to food, but also are very beneficial for your body. Also known as jira, these cumin seeds have been extensively used in culinary preparations in Indian subcontinent since ages ago. Why? It's rich in iron, beneficial for anemics, lactating women. It's a great aid in digestion, prevents indigestion, flatulence, diarrhea, nausea, morning sickness. For immediate relief from acidity, chew a pinch of of raw cumin seeds. Cumin seeds have antiseptic properties and aid in curing common colds. 
it doesn't let cough to form um, and collect in the respiratory system, the mucus. And uh, so it's beneficial getting rid of mucus. And also, for most people, you should really let your cumin seeds soak in water for a little bit. makes them easier to digest. Cumin seed helps stimulate the secretion of enzymes in the pancreas, which in turn help in the absorption of nutrients. And also, it's a great liver flush to get heavy metals out of your body. By the way, the oil is even more concentrated and turns off pain and helps healing all throughout the body. Another very important herb that we should be using is green tea. The latest is from the Peking Union Medical College in Beijing, and it showed, quote, that the administration of green tea beverages or extracts resulted in significant reductions in total cholesterol and the bad LDL cholesterol concentrations. And uh, so that's just drinking a cup, one cup a day could help lower the bad cholesterol. And that's important. Uh, that was published in the American Journal of, of Clinical Nutrition. And the reason why, by the way, if you've just joined us and we have new people every week and lots of them, a lot of nurses, doctors, uh, professors, teachers would say, well, if I don't know where the information you're sharing comes from, then it may be very subjective. I'd like to know that there's real science behind it. So that's why we give the peer review literature, cite the journal, and the studies. Also, progesterone, which most people are deficient in, inhibits the growth of neuroblastoma cancer cells, and that's very good. This is from Science Daily, published in the peer-reviewed journal of molecular medicine, quote, high doses of the hormone progesterone can kill neuroblastoma cells while leaving healthy cells unscathed. That's according to Emory University School of Medicine, and uh, just published. More research, of course, will come after this, but at least this is very exciting for people who have neuroblastoma. Now, the omega-3 fatty acids, and you can get them from fish, but you can also get them from flaxseed and walnuts and avocados. According to Ohio State University, they can reduce anxiety and inflammation in healthy students. This is a new study gauging the impact of consuming more of the omega-3 fatty acid oil, and then seeing a marked reduction in both anxiety and inflammation. The findings by a team of researchers at Ohio State University was just published in the preview journal Brain Behavior and Immunity, and it's the latest from more than three decades of research in the links between psychological stress and immunity, meaning the more stress you're under, the more challenged your immune system. So if you want to have a healthier immune system and live a longer life, be less susceptible to immune-related disease, then take your omega-3 fatty acids each day, anywhere from one to 3,000. And if you have pain anywhere in the body, the pro-inflammatory cytokines, cyto, C-Y-T-O, kinds, K-I-N-E-S, uh, are released. And this brings them down, and that's what you want. There's a new study from the University of 
Toma in Japan, and it was published in the Cell and Cell Press, and it says, quote, The study provides some of the first evidence that new neurons sprouted in the hippocampus, that's a region of the brain associated with learning and memory, caused the decay of short-term fear memories in that brain region without an overall memory loss. Now think of that for a moment. What they're saying is that you're able to erase memories, especially those fear memories. And uh, they propose that the birth of new neurons promotes the gradual loss of memory traces from the hippocampus as those memories are transferred elsewhere in the brain or permanently stored. But they're not, uh, you're getting new mitochondria. Quote, thinks all memories, this is the lead researcher, uh, in the context of fear memory, that are initially stored in the hippocampus are influenced by this process. I would suggest also, why not use hypnosis? Hypnosis is one of the best ways of getting back in time, even to when you were an infant, a toddler, even in a fetus, because you were processing vibrations, words, sounds, the tone uh, from your father, mother, anyone else in the environment. And up to about the age of seven, your whole reality is their reality. It's difficult to differentiate for yourself. There was a very famous person who said, a monk, you give me a child from birth to the age of seven, and I'll give you a student of the church forever. And indeed, that's indoctrination. Well, we're all indoctrinated to varying degrees. Not all indoctrinating principles are negative. Some are necessary to establish social boundaries, or at least understand the society we live in, what's expected, and standards. But an awful lot is not constructive, it's destructive. So I believe that it makes sense to look at how we can re-stimulate our brain at the same time, how we can get in there with some hypnosis and go back and redo that memory. And I'll give you a case. This is an actual situation. I was visiting a friend of mine who was a chiropractor, and I was going over the test results with him where he was one of 50 individuals that participated in an energy healing experiment, the first of its kind, where for a year I had sought out individuals who believed, provable or not, that they had some gift of healing. And we had some very notable people in the study, some very famous people. Harry Edwards, he was the head of the Spiritual Association of Great Britain, uh, Dolores Collins, she was probably the most famous lecturer and uh, supposed healer in England, but I just wanted to see if it was possible. In the United States, Rabbi Abraham uh, Wiseman and uh, Dr. Thomas Kruth, uh, Dolores Krieger, the head of nursing at New York University, because of this study would later go on to found Therapeutic Touch. We have all these different people. And we wanted to see six out of six times could they reverse cancer in mice that I'd gotten from the lab downstairs, which was doing orthodox chemotherapy, and they were able to do it. The others were not. These these six people did 
all the rest were not able to. So we proved that a, a phenomena existed, but we didn't prove where that energy came from. Since these were all different people and had different beliefs, then I had to do more research, which I was able to do. And uh, so anyhow, I'm over showing uh, Morton Jacobs. And by the way, he was known as the chiropractor with the healing hands. And I was going over the results, and just then this guy uh, came out and said, well, I'll see you next month. And uh, okay, right on time. And I said, what's that about? He said, oh, every month he gets pain in his upper back and his neck. And he comes in and I help relieve it, and then he's okay. And I said, how often has he been coming? He says, oh, years. So I, I stopped him at the door, and I said, can I speak to you for a few moments? And I said, uh, I'm not aware of any such phenomena that occurs exactly every so often a pain that will occur. Either you have pain or you don't have pain. It may be higher or lower on a pain scale, but to have the same pain in the same place for how long? He said, my whole life. I said, what kind of work do you do? He said, I'm a branch manager of a bank. Okay. I said, is there anything happening? No. Well, upon further uh, consulting with him, I find out that, indeed, the pain starts the day before he is to have his meeting. And uh, and so I said, all right, let's try something. He volunteered. And I got a Dr. Donald Mullins, who was with the Albert, uh, Albert Ellis Center of Psychoanalysis. And Donald put him under, took him back. And each year when he went back, he did it as if he was looking at a, a coloring book. He said, now tell me the pretty pictures, the pictures you like, make you smile. Tell me the pictures that make you sad, make you cry, scare you. And this took a, quite a while. But finally, at, at when he was a kid, there was one scene that was a terrifying picture. And he was taking some plates from the dining table to the kitchen. And he stumbled on the rug and dropped to the plates, and they broke. And his father was yelling at him, you don't, you can't be trusted, responsible, even take some dishes, and really berated him. And he remembers all he could do was just kind of bring his shoulders up. That's, that's, that's the only thing he could do. And uh, he was really terrified. So then I, I, what I said was, I said, all right, tell him that you're going to reverse the role. So Donald reversed the role, and Donald became his father in the scene under hypnosis and said, now, let's take the plates back to the kitchen. But then say, stop, wait a second. In Greece, when you're celebrating something special, you throw the dishes into the, you know, into the, fireplace and break them and you dance and you sing. Let's throw all the dishes. So he threw all the dishes broken. And then the father started singing and dancing. The mother started singing and dancing. And he held his son up and said, there's nothing you're going to do in your life that's going to make me not love you. You're very responsible and uh, and you're appreciated. And he brought him out of hypnosis and people think that when you're under hypnosis, you don't remember anything. You hear everything. 
In fact, most of the time when people are under hypnosis, they think, I'm not hypnotized. I can hear what's going on. I'm here. Well, let me tell you, uh, that's what you think. You cannot imagine the power of hypnosis. So I said, okay, that's it. He said, well, that's simple. He never had to come back to Marty. He no longer had pain. That's just one example of why I believe we should be using hypnosis more in the therapeutic process of healing. Now, there's something in red wine, which means it's in grapes, which means you're going to get more of it in eating grapes or grape juice than in red wine. It's a compound that's been shown to slow brain plaque linked to Alzheimer's disease. And that's important. That's not the first study that I've seen like that. I've seen at least 150 studies that show that resveratrol, the active ingredient in grapes, will help block the plaques from forming in the brain, and that's crucial. So my suggestion is if you have someone that has memory loss, dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS, first, if you can find a holistic neurologist, great. If you can't, then find a holistic nurse or a practitioner who understands the brain, brain chemistry, and to turn off inflammation, and then to try to reabsorb the amyloid plaque that's in the brain. And something that can help you, from this is from Science Daily. This was published uh, in a major journal of proteome research. They found that, quote, the chocolate cure, end quote, for emotional stress is getting new support from a clinical trial published in this journal, and that it showed that an ounce and a half of dark chocolate a day for two weeks reduced levels of stress hormones in the body of people feeling highly stressed. Everyone's favorite treat also partially corrected other stress-related biochemical imbalances. So, if you take a healthy, and of course the healthiest chocolates are your raw chocolates, and not your dairy chocolates or your white sugar chocolates, then you could be helping yourself. Also, if you want to help prevent kidney disease, say no to diet sodas and excess salt. According to S.L. Baker of Natural News and the American Society of uh, Neuropathy, that uh, the number of people in the United States diagnosed with kidney disease has doubled over the last 20 years. You're talking about 20 million people at risk for developing kidney disease. And that's a bunch of people. That makes it epidemic levels. But unlike other diseases and conditions, kidney disease doesn't just strike out of the blue. It is often the result of what people do with their bodies. The culprits, eating food high in sodium, like fast food, junk food, Americans love, and drinking artificially sweetened sodas. Those are the findings of two new studies, both conducted by Dr. Julia Lin and Dr. Gary Kerham of Brigham and Women's Hospital. And uh, they were recently at the American Society's annual meeting, and they made the presentation. They gave a study entitled Associations of Diet and Kidney Function Decline, and they reviewed the kidney function over an 11-year period of 3,000 women who participated in the nurse's health study. Quote, in women 
with well-preserved kidney function, dietary sodium intake was associated with greater kidney function decline, which is consistent with experimental animal data that high sodium intake promotes progressive kidney decline. In previous research, scientists using information collected from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey uh, also found that uh, the sugar content in sodas created a big problem. The amount of protein in our diet creates a problem. The amount of sugar, fructose, artificial sweeteners creates a problem. So that's important. Now, something that's really good for you are grapefruits. This is the latest. It shows a grapefruit extract can prevent metabolic syndrome. Now, that means type 2 diabetes, the risk of cardiovascular disease. These are all important because they're part of metabolic syndrome. And uh, it also means higher blood pressure um, and more of the bad LDL cholesterol. So start using grapefruits. According to this study, published in the Journal of Agriculture and Food Chemistry, they found that people ate one red grapefruit each day might experience, um, reduce their cholesterol levels by 15% and reduce their triglycerides by 17%. That's terrific. And this was published in the journal Diabetes. I would suggest that if you um, juice the grapefruit, you could easily drink the juice of two to three grapefruits, and that gives you even more. And finally, colloidal silver better than antibiotics. Now, this is Mike Adams, the health ranger from Natural News, and I'll quote him here. He said, quote, colloidal silver is one of the best natural antibiotics yet discovered in human history. For many health applications, it's safer, cheaper, and far more effective than traditional antibiotics. The effectiveness of colloidal silver is such a huge threat to the pharmaceutical industry, the FDA, and even the FTC has engaged in an all-out assault to threaten and intimidate colloidal silver companies in order to get, drive them out of business. Now, to help provide answers about why, we took a look. Colloidal silver versus antibiotics. Silver was used 1,200 years ago by Egyptians, Romans, and Greeks, and sailors, and then by the pioneers who populated our country. They used it for various illnesses and to keep their foods and liquids from spoiling. Prior to 1938, before antibiotics, colloidal silver was used by doctors as their main substance to fight bacteria in a more natural way than through antibiotics they use today. Antibiotics can harm our kidneys and liver functions. Colloidal silver promotes healing. Olive leaf extract, colloidal silver, royal jelly, mushroom extracts are examples of products that may be a better first choice than antibiotics. When our bodies are toxic, the immune system becomes the garbage collection system. Saunas and hot baths help to eliminate toxins that overwhelm the body's immune system. This is a natural way to boost your immune system by freeing it up to do what it does best. So, that's what he has to say, and I have always suggested that always have colloidal silver in liquid form. And generally, if you're getting sick or if you have an infection, you can put it right on the infection. I believe if every hospital in America gave two things to every patient who is ulcerating in the legs and would end up dying of bed sores. And by the way, last year we lost, I think it was 80,000 Americans in hospitals to bed sores. Those are completely preventable. That's just gross negligence. 
But had they put colloidal silver on and then a, a, a compress with uh, Manuka honey and um, the resin of bee propolis and then gave them both intravenous and direct IV of, uh, of the uh, ozone therapy, they would have had tremendous success in saving lives. Also, they should be aware that vitamin E at 1,000 units with mixed tocopherols and tocotrienols put right onto a gangrene can help it also. That's the latest on health and nutrition. I'm Gary Nall. We're going to take a break and come back. Please take Continue on, and now it's time for you to call in, 888-874-4888, to our environmental segment now. And this is from Polly Mosdens from The Wire, quote, Oil wells linked to Oklahoma's stunning increase in earthquakes. Between 1978 and 2008, Oklahoma had just two earthquakes with a magnitude of 3.0. Just this year, thus far, there had been over 200 such earthquakes, more even than the highly unstable state of California. They had 140. Experts believe the unusual increase in earthquakes is linked to the number of wastewater wells connected to oil and gas drilling. Now, this audience knows that wastewater wells occur when oil and gas companies inject wastewater deep underground. Scientists believe that the wastewater acts as a lubricant in existing fault lines, causing more movement. Hydraulic fracturing, commonly known as fracking, has also been linked to earthquakes. Then the majority of Oklahoma tremors were caused by wastewater wells. The U.S. Geological Society and Oklahoma officials are adding monitor stations to best determine which wastewater wells are causing the earthquakes. There are currently 15 permanent stations and 17 temporary stations. Thus far, none of the earthquakes in Oklahoma have caused major damage. However, the U.S. Geological Survey's geophysicist Rob Williams believes it's only a matter of time. Quote, given the rate of earthquakes over the last six months, it's concerning enough to be worried about a larger damaging earthquake happening, let alone what might happen in the future. By the way, they also found it happening in England. Something of interest, and this is from Tulane University, 
Domestic Violence Scars Kids' DNA. Quote, Evidence of domestic violence or trauma can show up in the DNA of children. A new study shows that children in homes affected by violence, suicide, or incarceration of a family member have significantly shorter telomeres, a cellular marker of aging, than those in stable households. Telomeres are the caps at the end of chromosomes that keep them from shrinking when cells replicate. Shorter telomeres are linked to higher risks of heart disease, cognitive decline, diabetes, mental illness. So it was published in the Peer Review Journal of Pediatrics. Quote, family-level stressors, such as witnessing a family member get hurt, creating an environment that affected the DNA within the cells of children. End quote. And we've been saying this for some time. It's called the epigenetics. Now, why is it important to know this? Because we really have two realities. One that represents about 97% of our waking hours and 97% of our continuous thoughts throughout a day come from our subconscious. Those, in turn, are heavily influenced with what happened in our life up to about the age of 10. After that, the things that happen are more conscious. We're more aware of it. But these are things that we don't remember. We have some vague idea at different times, but we're not really aware that these are triggers inside of us. Now, the other reality is our mindful consciousness, what we can do by keeping our mind in this moment, focused, balanced, healthy, make our choices from reason, not reaction. And so when a child has been scarred, let's say they have a, well, for example, a father that is verbally abusive, uh, does not give them love, then they can absorb that, but they don't realize they didn't get love. They actually may think that the best that they can get is someone who's abusive, and a lot of people get into abusive relationships. And when asked why, because that was how they perceived love, someone that was abusive. Hard to imagine if you came from a healthy background, and that would be an alien concept to you. So once you understand what a person's subconscious is doing, how much control they, that subconscious has, then hypnosis can make a difference and mindful meditation can make a difference. We've been told time and again, how many times you have to hear it from people on Fox and syndicated radio shows like Rush Limbaugh, well, look at me. You know, and then they tell you some story about how they had to do some menial job, but they worked themselves out to be very successful. Good for them. I do not challenge the fact that whatever they did, to get successful, that's their business. They have a right to their success. But to suggest that everyone could do the same thing is simply wrong. First, it denies the whole value of understanding life energies. The dynamics as a group are always going to be successful, easier than anyone else. I don't care what obstacles you place in your path, they'll exceed those limitations. The adaptive supportives are meant to be the people working together for the common good. They're the stable force. They don't like to move. They don't like to change. Change bothers them. It scares them. They like the simplicity of living relatively simple life. Now, I've, I've written on this. I've done a documentary on it. I've lectured on it. And a lot of psychologists actually have used this in, in their own classes because it gives them another piece of the puzzle of life 
So it's just not, oh, what you were born with, how you were conditioned, let's go talk about that. And then once you understand what your mother did or your father did that wasn't right, then you should be able to get over it. But they don't. So so let's just say that you are one of these more charismatic and dynamic people. To assume everyone's going to do what you're going to do? No. It's not going to happen. Never has happened. This is another study from Laura Clausen Follow, Daily Cause. Quote, The myth that the United States of America is a place where upward mobility is a real possibility available to anyone if they persist, despite evidence to the contrary, like the fact that rich kids with low test scores are more likely to graduate from college than poor kids with high test scores, and poor kids rise to the top income groups as adults uh, at rates of less than 5% in big part of the country. Now, another study backs that up. Sociologists uh, followed 800 Baltimore kids starting in 1982 when they were first graders. 30 years later, their studies shows that just how rare it is to rise from low-income childhood to a high-income adulthood, as well as the added challenges that black men face. Of the original 800 public school children, he started with 33 moved from low-income family birth to a high-income bracket by the time they neared 30. Alexander found that the education, rather than giving kids a fighting chance at a better life, simply preserved privilege across generations. Only 4% of the low-income kids he met in 1982 had college degrees when he interviewed them at age 28 whereas 45% of kids from higher-income backgrounds did. And perhaps perhaps most striking in his findings was the role of race in upward mobility. Alexander found that among men who drop out of high school, the employment differences between white and black was staggering. At age 22, 89% of white subjects who drop out of high school were working, compared with 40% of the black dropouts. These differences came despite the fact that it was the better-off white men who reported the highest rates of drug abuse and binge drinking. White men from disadvantaged families came in second in that department. Just 33 people out of 800 moved from low income to high income in adulthood. And that's 4%. So again, I don't think it matters how many of these studies confirm this. Here's the reality. What we do in our society to keep people from appreciating what life could be is we first deprive them of a healthy, beautiful environment to grow up in. Instead, many of the people that are having trouble struggling are growing up in environments that are extremely violent. And yet, for most of America, they don't want to know about this. It's someone else's problem. It's another city. It's a ghetto. Why, have you ever gone on to the ghettos? No. Right? When you go into the ghettos, you'll appreciate what it is to live in a ghetto. And that 98% of all the people in that ghetto don't commit crimes, but they are the victims of crimes. They don't have the infrastructure. This week I was doing a lecture. And it was a fairly affluent group. And I asked, what do you think would happen if you took one of the most expensive blocks in the world, the block where on Park Avenue where the Koch brothers and all these other hedge fund billionaires live just in one building. But let's say in that building, just their building, 
The water pipes were broken, you didn't fix them. Windows broke, you didn't re replace them. Locks on the doors, you didn't change the locks, you left them unlocked. Uh, uh, white glove doorman, you got rid of the doorman, so anybody could have, have access to the building. Garbage pickup, didn't happen. Uh, no heat in the wintertime because the oil wasn't delivered. And then, allow gangs to go into the building and in the neighborhood. But the police wouldn't be there to arrest them. That's what happened to an entire housing complex in middle America. And it was beautiful, and then it became neglected because they didn't have the money for the services, and it deteriorated until finally they moved everyone out and tore it down. Whatever you don't maintain will decay. Same with your health. And we become grossly negligent. But why? The answer is simple. Instead of giving more Americans a percentage of the profit, even if it's 10%, at the end of the year is a bonus to show that we appreciate their loyalty and the quality of their work that helped us all earn a profit. Instead, they give that to the executives and to the shareholders, and they try to downsize, minimize the wages they do pay people. They start bringing in people from India and, and South Korea and other countries who are highly educated and willing to work for less than half the price of an American. But there are also advantages to bring him in on a special visa, work visa, because these people don't have to have a permanent employee status, and a lot of the benefits don't accrue to them, including health insurance. So if you've got an employee that you're paying $100,000 to with health benefits on top of that, and you can hire someone for $40,000 who can be taught to do the same work with the same educational background or even better, then you save all that money. It makes you look better at the end of the year when you're saying our net profit rose by such and such. It also makes a difference when you decide to outsource jobs and uh, to other countries. You make a bicycle in uh, Wheeling, West Virginia. It costs you, all told, about uh, $47 to actually make the bike so you can ship it out to stores. And China comes along and says, we'll make the same bike for $10. And we'll even build your factory. And you don't have any labor laws, environmental laws, OSHA, workman's compensation, nothing. Pure profit. You think, well, that's good. So then you close down your American plant, open up the other plant, and now you can take your bike in and sell it for $30, underselling all the other American brands. And because people are more conscious of price than they are quality, now you've put all those people out of business. So over the last 14 years, we have closed down 54,000 factories. Since 1974, we have caused the loss or change of more than 28 million jobs in the United States. And with each generation of change and outsourcing and deregulation, more Americans were not able to make a living wage and therefore had to work two or three jobs just to make ends meet, so they had no disposable income, so they began to live off their credit. And hence, the only reason that they were able to survive for a while was they were living off their equity in their home. As the real estate market bubble, an artificial construct by Wall Street, went up, uh, they then cashed it out until then when the bubble collapsed, they had nothing. But had there not been a bubble in the real estate market, you'd have found a lot of Americans simply bankrupt. So you see, we could have done it differently. 
you could have gone into every area of America and kept the factories and businesses there. You could have supported the efforts to keep the communities functioning and serviced with all their needs, like sanitation and health care and counseling services and parks. We chose not to. That was not because the best and brightest in Washington, D.C., from all the Ivy League schools, didn't understand the consequences. They didn't care. So one day you wake up and you got a Bill O'Reilly or Rush Limbaugh or someone saying, all we need is people to work harder. And I say, that's not the case. Americans work harder than anyone else I know. And they take less vacation time. They're stressed. It is the unmitigated greed of the corporatized citizen, the person that knows what they're doing, does not have empathy or care for the consequences. And that's virtually all of our power systems. All of our, all of our systems have betrayed us. Those are my thoughts. Now, also, one more, and then we'll take your calls. This is from... John Whitehead from Activist Post. The article is entitled, Has the Department of Homeland Security Become America's Standing Army? Quote, A standing military force with an overgrown executive branch will not long be safe companions to liberty. James Madison. Here in New Mexico, we are moving more towards a national police force. Homeland Security is involved with a lot of little things around here. Somebody in Washington needs to call a timeout. Dan Klein, retired Albuquerque Police Department sergeant. If the United States is a police state, in which I say it is, then the Department of Homeland Security is its national police force. With all the brutality, ineptitude, and corruption, such a role implies. In fact, although the Department of Homeland Security governmental bureaucracy may at times appear to be inept and bungling, it is ruthlessly efficient when it comes to building what the Founding Fathers feared most, a standing army on American soil. The third largest federal agency behind the Departments of Veterans Affairs and Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, with 240,000 full-time workers, $61 billion budget, and sub-agencies that include the Coast Guard, Customs and Border Protection, Secret Service, Transportation, Security Administration, the TSA, and the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, which is, by the way, just a runaway train. In the 12 years since it was established, quote, to prevent terrorist attacks within the United States, the Department of Homeland Security has grown from a post-9-11 knee-jerk reaction to a levithan with tentacles in every aspect of American life. With good reason, a bipartisan bill to provide greater oversight and accountability into the Department of Homeland Security's purchasing process has been making its way through Congress. A better plan would be to abolish the Department of Homeland Security altogether. In making the case for shutting down the de facto National Police Agency, analyst Charles Kenney offers the following six reasons. One, the agency lacks leadership. Two, terrorism is far less of a threat than it was made out to be. Three, the FBI has actually stopped more alleged terrorist attacks in Department of Homeland Security. Four, the agency wastes exorbitant amounts of money with little to show for it. Five, 
an overweight Department of Homeland Security gets a free pass to infringe on civil liberties without a shred of economic justification. And six, the agency is just plain bloated. To Kenny's list, I would add the following. The menace of a national police force. A standing army vested with so much power cannot be overstated, nor can its danger be ignored. Indeed, as the following list shows, just about every nefarious deed, tactic, and thuggish police action today can be traced back to the Department of Homeland Security, its police state mindset, and the billions of dollars it distributes to police agencies in the form of grants. The militarization of police and SWAT teams. The Department of Homeland Security routinely hands out six-figure grants to enable local municipalities to purchase military-style vehicles as well as a veritable war chest of weaponry, ranging from tactical vests, bomb-disarming robots, assault weapons, and combat uniforms. This rise in military equipment purchases funded by the Department of Homeland Security has, according to analyst Andrew Becker, quote, parallel an apparent increase in local SWAT teams. The end result, an explosive growth in the use of SWAT teams for otherwise routine police matters, an increasing tendency on the part of police to shoot first and ask questions later, and an overall mindset within police forces that they are at war and the citizens are the enemy combatants. Spying on activists, dissidents, and veterans. The Department of Homeland Security released three infamous reports on right-wing and left-wing extremism and another entitled Operation Vigilant Eagle, outlining a surveillance program targeting veterans. The reports collectively and broadly define extremists as individuals and groups, quote, that are mainly anti-government, rejecting federal authority in favor of state or local authority, or rejecting government authority entirely. In 2013, it was revealed that the Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and state and local law enforcement agencies, and the private sector were working together to conduct nationwide surveillance on protesters and any and all First Amendment activists. They're stockpiling ammunition. The Department of Homeland Security, along with other governmental agencies, has been stockpiling an alarming amount of ammunition in recent years, which only adds to the discomfort of those already leery of the government. And, uh, in fact, they want to give 1,600 rounds of ammunition, to, which is 260 million rounds that they have in stock, per every police officer in the United States. That's just insane. And now they want an additional 1.6 billion rounds of ammunition. That's enough, according to Forbes magazine, to sustain a hot war like Vietnam for 20 years. They're distributing license plate readers. The Department of Homeland Security has already distributed more than $50 million in grants to enable local police agencies to acquire license plate readers, which rely on mobile cameras to photograph and identify cars and match them against national database to track you. They're contracting to build detention camps. That's correct. Department of Homeland Security awarded a $385 million contract to Halliburton subsidiary to build detention centers on American soil. Although the government and Halliburton were not forthcoming about where and when these domestic detention centers would be built, they rationalized the need for them in case of, quote, an emergency influx of immigrants. Yeah. Well, viewed in conjunction with the National Defense Authorization provision allowing the military to arrest and definitely detain anyone, including American citizens, for any reason, we suspect them. 
They're tracking cell phones with Stingray devices. Distributed to local police agencies as a result of grants from the Department of Homeland Security, these Stingray devices enable police to track individual cell phones and their owners without a court warrant or court order. The amount of information conveyed by these devices about one's activities and whereabouts and interactions is considerable. They're carrying out military drills and lockdowns in American cities. Each year, the Department of Homeland Security funds military-style training in cities across the United States. They're using the TSA as an advanced guard. The TSA now searches a variety of government and private databases, including things like car registrations, employment information, in order to track travelers before they ever get near an airport. They even check tax identification numbers. They look at past travel itineraries, property records, your physical characteristics. They're conducting virtual strip searches with full-body scanners under the TSA. They're carrying out soft-target checkpoints and uh, everywhere. They're also uh, directing government workers to spy on Americans. That's correct. They're asking firefighters, police officers, and even corporate employees who have received training to spy on and report back to government entities on the day-to-day activities of their fellow citizens. These individuals are authorized to, quote, report suspicious activity, whatever in the hell that means, which can include just innocuous activities. They're conducting widespread spying networks using fusion centers. They're carrying out constitutional free border control searches. They're funding citywide surveillance cameras. They're utilizing drones and other spy bots. So when someone suggests, oh, you're just being paranoid, Realize you're speaking with a completely delusional individual. They just don't want to know the truth. In the interim, we're going to take a real brief break and come right back. Please stay with us. I remember my first love affair. Somehow or another, the whole darn thing went wrong. But my mama had some great advice, so I thought I'd put it in the words of this song. I can still hear her saying... Boy, 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 oh, I see you sitting out there all alone, crying your eyes out, cause the woman that you love is gone. Oh, there's gonna be, there's gonna be a whole lot of trouble in your life. Oh, so listen to me, get up off your knees, cause only the strong survive. That's what she said, only the strong survive, only the strong survive, yeah, you gotta be strong, you better hold on, Engineers telling me that we have a, a problem with our uh, board, so I can't take any more calls. Let me end our program today with a, um, a commentary by Robert Shear of Truthdig. Up close and personal with George Bush's horrifying legacy. It's short, but I think very insightful. The Iraq disaster remains George W. Bush's enduring folly, and the Republican attempt to shift the blame to Obama's presidency is obscene nonsense. This was and will always be viewed properly as Bush's quagmire, a murderous killing field based upon blatant lies. This showcase of American deceit 
obvious to the entire world, began with the invented weapons of mass destruction threat that Bush were even, even semi-cognizant of the intelligence data must have known, represented an egregious fraud. So was his nonsensical claim that Saddam Hussein had something to do with the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, when in fact the, he was Osama bin Laden's most effective Arab opponent. Yet Bush responded to 9-11 attacks by overthrowing a leader who had banished al-Qaeda from Iraq and who had been an ally of the United States in the war to contain Iran's influence in the region. Instead of confronting the funders of Sunni extremism based in Saudi Arabia, the home of 15 of the 19 hijackers and their Saudi leader, bin Laden, Bush chose to attack the secular leader of Iraq. That invasion, as the evidence of the last week confirms, resulted in an enormous boon to both Sunni extremists and their militant Shiite opponents throughout the Middle East. How pathetic that Secretary of State John Kerry is now reduced to begging the Ayatollahs in Iran to come to the aid of their brethren in Iraq. Or that the movement to overthrow the secular leader of Syria, a movement supported by the United States, has resulted in a, in a base for Sunni terrorists in Iraq and Syria far greater consequences than the one previously used to plot the 9-11 attacks from isolated Afghanistan. Imagine if President Barack Obama had succeeded in his critics' demands that he supply the insurgents in Syria with sophisticated weaponry. Those weapons would now be turned against the fragmenting Iraqi army that the United States trained at an enormous cost. Or if he had chosen military confrontation with Iran instead of diplomacy in dealing with Iran's nuclear program, leaving the Shiite leaders of Iraq squeezed between enemies on the fronts, the elected government in Iraq has a chance to survive only because Obama gave peace a chance in choosing to negotiate with the government of Iran. The only error Obama made in ending the U.S. military role in Iraq was not moving fast enough to disengage from Bush's nation-building fantasies. Where's the evidence that it ever works? Particularly in the Middle East, the United States has backed the military ruling class in Egypt for more than three decades. And the instant the much hoped for transition from democracy appeared, those same corrupt generals scurried for safety to the embrace of oil-drenched Saudi religious fanatics. Libya's Gaddafi is now gone, only to be replaced by militants given to an even harsher brand of oppression. Yet a bipartisan consensus of Washington politicians still believes that the overthrow of the secular leader of Syria is somehow consistent with the proclaimed goals of the war on terrorism. It obviously isn't, as the anti-Assad Sunni militants, who now freely cross the border from Syria to Iraq, waving flags in support of al-Qaeda, have attested to. It is further evidence that dealing with terrorism in militaristic battle terms rather than a social pathology to be treated as an illness is a dangerous diversion. The wrong terrorism is an irrational conceit. It's like a war on cancer or flu in that it assumes the military arsenal is the deciding factor when it never is. The seeds of radical discontent throughout the world, but particularly in the Middle East, derive from the myriad complex and intertwined causes. In this region, the obvious sources of tension in religious grievances, stagnant economies, and frustrated nationalism, as with the obviously legitimate demands of Palestinians and Kurds, have been widely exacerbated down through the centuries by the imperial ambitions of non-regional actors. Those prisoners of imperial hubris 
always underestimated the re- resilience of the occupied and came to believe their own lies about being crusaders for enlightenment. That is a dangerous delusion energetically asserted by Paul Wolfowitz and Dick Cheney's even now, as their mad schemes for a reinvented Middle East spectacular disintegrate, in their minds it is still deeply felt that if only Obama had stayed the course of occupation, we would be greeted as liberators, while our corporations quietly sucked up their oil. In conclusion, President, presidential candidate Obama made clear his contempt for that neocon pipe dream. Once elected in regard to winding down the Iraq war, he has not strayed far from that conviction. End quote. I'm Gary Nall. I want to thank you all for listening, and I look forward to sharing more on tomorrow's program. Have a nice day.